Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 187. In this episode, we're talking about illustrating the catechism for children with Natasha Kennedy and Dr. Todd Haynes. Natasha Kennedy is a freelance designer, graphic novelist, and illustrator of the Fat Cat series. And Dr. Todd Haynes is associate publisher of Acquisitions and Development for Lexham Press at Faith Life and the author of the children's books in the Fat Cat series, which is an illustrated catechism for children. Team members on the episode from the two cities include me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this conversation with Natasha and Todd, we sort of close out our mini series on children's Bibles and children's books and hear from them about a series that they have produced on catechetical material for children, specifically an illustrated catechism that they call the Fat Cat series. There's a number of books that are already out in this series, uh, including on the Lord's Prayer, uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and the Ten Commandments, as well as some additional books. And we talk about the series, we talk about what their plans are going forward, and how this series kind of fills a kind of unique place within the market of like children's Bibles and children's books by specifically trying to illustrate catechetical material uh, for children. So it's a wide-ranging conversation. It's a lot of fun. We talk about the artistry involved. We talk about the hermeneutical implications of depicting certain scenes in certain ways. We also talk about how one of their goals is to sort of connect the, the material to Jesus at, at, at every turn. And so some of the issues about how do you depict Jesus and, and, and what scenes do you use, especially when you're talking about the Ten Commandments, right? So there's some interesting stuff going on there that I think is just really fascinating to think about hermeneutically, theologically, and pedagogically as well, since this is obviously uh, material designed to teach children about the faith. And so it's a wonderful conversation, and I hope you all enjoy it. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Natasha Kennedy and Dr. Todd Haynes. Well, Natasha and Todd, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, John. It's good to yeah, be here. Thank you. Well, really excited to talk about the Fat Cat series. Uh, I think uh, it would make sense to kind of start by hearing a bit about, you know, how the series got started. What what exactly is it is it doing? We've been doing a little bit of a mini series on children's books, children's Bibles, and have uh, talked with people who have sort of evaluated them, talked with uh, somebody who uh, is producing uh, them in, in, in the case of uh, a kind of a series on the minor prophets. And what you guys are doing is, is a bit different still, and we have not yet talked to an illustrator. So Natasha, curious to hear that side of things uh, as well. So uh, how about uh, tell us a little bit about the Fat Cat series and, and um, what you guys are trying to do with that? I think it's like the best... Uh theological kids book series out there <laughs> no not it, um, biased not biased at all not at all yeah it just it's <laughs> just the best um yeah uh well the series is like we're focusing in on christian essentials uh and um kind of illustrating the basics of our faith you know lord's prayer ten commandments 
and Apostles Creed, we kind of started with those, um, illustrating those for kids using the life of Jesus. So kind of keeping Jesus front and center, you know, we're introducing kids to the basis of their faith. We want Jesus to be on every page, you know, um, him being uh, their righteousness and him fulfilling the law and all those things. So um, that's kind of the vision is uh, making kind of the basics of our faith and like the richest parts of our faith uh, accessible for kids. Yeah. So the child is basically like, is the type for every believer. And I think that's easily forgotten, especially in American evangelicalism that can tend to be really, really, really heavy on cognition. You know, um, you have to know stuff to be a, a great, strong Christian or to be sure about your faith. But the the great tradition of the church hasn't quite worked that way. Of course, there's cognitive pieces, but there's lots more going on. And the great tradition of the church, you know, most of the people couldn't read. They're listening. And uh, so our wonderful communion of saints had this wonderful practice of three key texts that have been handed down to us known as the catechism. And in this case, the catechism isn't, sometimes people think of like questions and answers, you know, Westminster large catechism or the Heidelberg or Luther's wonderful small catechism. Um, but those are all commentaries on the catechism. The catechism itself is only the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And this has come down to us as a way to teach anyone what the Christian faith is. Uh, see, Augustine has an early series on this. This is classic sort of preparation for baptism stuff. Uh, and the beauty of it is they're small. Those are all three small texts that anyone can memorize. My, my small children... They won't always recite it to me, but I know that they know them and it gives them mastery over something. They're not truly masters over the content, but they know the words. You know what I mean? Just like I'm not a master over the content. Neither are you guys. These are words that master us, but they're words that we know. And so then we can go into bigger pieces of text, uh, bigger pieces of situations and in worship and find our, our footing. So that's the goal of the series is really begin at the beginning. And like Ben Myers says in his Apostles' Creed book with uh, in the Christian Essentials, the Christian faith, this is where you begin and you never leave this beginning. To leave this beginning is to leave the faith. So the goal of Fat Cat is really just to give this to parents and to children. And because catechesis in America is in crisis and has been for 40 years plus, parents, when they have children, they're at this time that maybe they've been away from the church. Maybe they're not so interested in this stuff and they don't feel confidence. And so they need help. So the goal of this series is to give parents words as they're teaching their children and then to invite them sort of into this discovery together. The, the name there, Fat Cat, that's what that's about. Is Cat there is for catechism. Fat, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit silly, um, but the idea is that the catechism is so rich and deep that you can't ever finish noshing on it. You'll never get to the end of it. So like Luther, Martin Luther will talk about this a lot in his sermons, that here in the catechism and in each text is more than we can think about or ponder for our lifetime. It's also based on, we. I had a very fat cat, <laughs> that <laughs> Tasha drew this fat cat. And that was sort of the origins of what built into 
now this very beautiful gray cat. Um, and, and Tasha's husband, Lindsay, who is a marketer for Lexum, he had made the point that this name fat cat, it takes a word that's scary. It, it sounds un, unusual catechism and makes it something, you know, fun and friendly. Yeah. And on that uh, point about the uh, actual fat cat itself, um, I believe there's a kind of where's Waldo component to the books. Is that right, mm -hmm. uh, Natasha? You sort of uh, hidden the cat uh, throughout the book for, for kids to find. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are inspired, you know, by like the whole Richard Scary gold bug type deal where it's like, I don't care how old you are. If you know there's something hidden on the page, you want to find it, you know? So it's yeah. like, we get both kids and adults and everyone in between looking we're looking for fat cats so it's really fun for me because i get to design the page you know not just around the moment in jesus life or the theological elements but it's like okay where would be a great hiding spot for this cat you know <laughs> some are some are easy some are hard it's kind of fun yeah so in addition to jesus being on every page we've got the fat yeah. cat on every page yeah totally and then there are two books where the 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 things to find grow as you read. So in the King of Christmas, that story is where do we find Jesus? And so the three kings and fat cat, they're wandering and they're looking in all these different places, seeing if Jesus is there. And as they visit these places, the sky and the, the fields and the waters, they somebody from that scene joins them. And so then as it goes on, you have to find, are they all there? And uh, in Easter, the King of Easter is a similar situation, but it's uh, Jesus finding us. And so as he goes and finds those who are lost and saves them, they join his crowd, his crew, and they go and look. So that was something that Tasha, I think you enjoyed Tasha, but it was greatly painful and a long, really a lot of art, a lot of work. A lot of work. And also like I do by the end, you know, there's like 26 people on the page and like five different animals or whatever. And I'll do one. And Todd's like, look, he's like, oh, you forgot the worm. Oh, and you forgot the goat. You know, it's like there's just so many things to keep track of. I had to have like a running list. But yeah, it was really fun. That That's awesome. So so you guys have, I think, four or five books that are out already. Um, I know, Todd, you mentioned there's the, there's the three kind of main texts in terms of like the, the catechism itself. Yeah. Um, but King of Christmas and King of Easter go beyond this a little bit. But um, is there some like rationale in terms of like the liturgical calendar or something that you all are mindful of in terms of what expanding the series looks like? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, part of it was that King of Easter and King of Christmas came about kind of from a way of trying to bring the content down a level. Uh, and just uh, the text is much simpler. So in the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments, you have the very text of those things and then sort of a gloss. And the gloss is pretty long. So, I mean, if you really read the whole thing, all of the words of those books, it's going to take a bit of time. I mean, there are different ways to use that book, uh, but it really is such a catechetical tool. So where King of Easter and King of Christmas are stories that you can read pretty quickly with someone, you know, really repetitive text. Um, you know, the, the sky where the stars shine is the King of Christmas there. 
And the child says no. So it's just this interactive and it's very repetitive in that way. So the idea there was, yeah, there's this liturgical calendar piece. And there is maybe an idea stirring that hasn't landed for a bigger piece of the liturgical calendar. But originally, the goal really was to hit on these major things of the catechism, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, baptism, communion, and forgiveness. Those would be lovely. But part of what we're thinking is when you're, you're a family, what are the basic things that a family needs to do discipleship? And so those are the pieces that we're trying to think about. So like in the pipeline, we have something for prayer. And you know, families need to pray together morning and evening. And they just need the examples. And in each of these books in the back, there's even an order for family prayer. So that's really the rationale is, you know, order like 10 books that every family should have to bring up their children and themselves in the word of the Lord. Can I make a plea for you guys to do a book uh, about ordinary time? Mm -hmm. You can make that plea. I think yeah, that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what are you thinking about in your plea? I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is me not pitching to a publisher to to take my idea. This is me telling a publisher about what the publisher should do. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great <laughs> to be to be clear. Um, no, I just love ordinary time. I think ordinary time is. Um, it, it sort of sounds like a joke, right? It sounds like, oh, they couldn't think of anything uh, better. So they just said, ah, this is kind of like time. You know, this is, yeah, yeah. Th there's, there's nothing. It, it's, it's the joke I always use is it's sort of like, uh, you, you know, the Hogwarts houses. It's like, you know, the bravest go to Gryffindor, the most ambitious go to Slytherin, the cleverest go to Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff gets everybody else. <laughs> 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 uh, which, which, you know, I think is a, a bad way to, of thinking about the Hogwarts houses, but, um, I, I think, I think it's also a sim similarly, uh, a bad way of thinking about ordinary time. I think, I think ordinary time, you know, wraps in, you know, all this stuff about just the anticipation, not, not in terms of Advent, but in terms of just like living between the times and, and, and sort of like, it's the, you know, the, the beauty of the mundane and, and God being at work in the midst of the ordinary. And um, yeah, so I, I, I could sort of envision uh, as a kind of like final book that, that, that could be a nice sort of like practical, bring it back to like where the kids are at sort of thing. So the nerd in me has to tell you, it's because they're numbered Sundays. So the, they have ordinals. So the ordinary thing is a lovely accident. I mean, all the things that you're hitting on are there. The green season, as it's also known, it's the time that pastors really tire out. It's a long season, 20 some Sundays, you know. Um, and so it's kind of like what, what life is like. It's, it is ordinary. It is normal. Uh, and you kind of get you get tired. You're like, could we use some different colors and have some different songs and different prayers? But the other thing that Ordinary Time has, or Trinity Tide, is some real jams for prayers on Sundays. Like some of the strongest prayers in the tradition are in there. Um, like just the other week, seventh Sunday after Trinity is really great. Uh, Lord, you are the giver and author of all gifts, of every good thing, something like this. So as a, as a series, some potentially 10 books or so, what, what is like the age range? I mean, I know Todd, you said that, you know, the child is sort of the type of, of the Christian uh, believer of the disciple. Um, but 
in terms of an ideal audience, what sort of the age range that the fat cat is uh, geared towards? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, initially we were just thinking sort of pre-readers to early readers, you know, four-year-olds to eight-year-olds kind of thing. But I know in my own church, our children's director has used this with elementary school-aged children and with um, actually with junior hires, like to talk about the Lord's Prayer. And I have more than once heard a lot of adults talk about the Apostles' Creed as like something that really cracked things open. Um, so, uh, but I mean, the goal really there is, yeah, kids that are just on the edge of reading or have just learned. Uh, and, and we have some things, you know, King of Easter, King of Christmas swing younger. And then Tasha just finished illustrating a board book that really is meant for, yeah, I mean, little babies that can open their eyes and find fluffy things. So Natasha, when you are, you know, thinking about what to put on a page, et cetera, what's the process like for you as you are thinking about, um, you, you know, obviously illustrating the text, but also like making playful decisions, creative, all kinds of creative choices, also keeping in mind the age range of, uh, you know, the audience that you're kind of uh, drawing towards. Uh, what, what are some things that go into that process for you? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it definitely feels like like walking a tightrope sometimes of like trying to like gear it towards kids and make it fun, but also remaining reverent and um, true to like the text or the theology that we're trying to bring to these kids. So, I mean, usually the process is like, I meet with Todd um, and we like talk about the vision for the book. Um, talk over each page. And while, while we're kind of discussing what we want there, I'll do like a rough sketch. Um, and I'll like send it to Todd and he'll be like, okay, well maybe do change the focus here or there, or add this or that, or make sure you put something like this on the page. Um, and then I go away from the meeting and I kind of like develop the sketches and then send it to Todd for approval. And that way, like he can kind of make sure I'm like on with the vision and I'm not, you know, drawing anything blasphemous or anything like that. Um, and, and then I'll like, then I can get to coloring. Once I get those gestures approved, I can like get to coloring and stuff every once in a while, you know, we'll have to like change something more drastically, but most of the time we can get it right through those sketches. Um, but there's definitely like a lot of back and forth between me and Todd and a few other people on the fat cat team, just like making sure we're really capturing everything. Yeah. I don't know if you want to add anything there, Todd. Yeah, just, I mean, early on, it was, in one sense, harder. Like, the Apostles' yeah. Creed was difficult because uh, you're sort of mapping passages. To, I mean, the Apostles' Creed, of course, like Luther says, it's it's honey made from every flower of the Bible. So there are all these Bible passages there, but you could kind of pick your your favorite. And so that was something that we were very cognizant of. Like, like I believe in God the Father Almighty. How do you depict this so that it makes sense for kids without mm -hmm. actually depicting the father, for example? Um, or like, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. How, what is that like? And what passages make the most sense? Or sometimes it was ways of if, if making sure that we were thinking of biblical imagery to fill out these, these things, like the life everlasting, same thing. The life everlasting is, is heaven. Yeah. But what images do we use of heaven that 
that maybe are more mundane, simpler. Uh, yeah, and so and he will come come again to judge the living and the dead. That raises a lot of issues because people often think of that as law. They do not think of it as good news. And part of this is because we're not catechized. We're not taught about it. Um, but in the, in the tradition, it's good news. It's good news that Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. And so that's like Luther, when he preaches on judgment, he'll say, you know, just as Jesus presented these things to, to his disciples, I'm presenting this to you, you who believe. I'm assuming that. And so here, this is good news. Just like Jesus says that the kingdom will come like a tree full of fruit in the summer. You, you, everyone, you love summer. Summer is so great. That's what Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead. It's going to be like that. And and some reform, uh, reform friend, he had uh, early kind of raised a question about this. And I gave him that explanation. And then he sent me an email later that he's like, hey, by the way, I was poking around in Calvin. And he says basically the same thing. <laughs> so QED reform folks, you got to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that was actually one of the pages that I had to redo because when I first drew it, I did the whole sheep and the goats thing. And there was kind of like the two sides of Jesus, you know, like that famous icon of one side of his face being angry and the other being merciful. And um, and finished it and Ben was like, nope, nope, yeah. this isn't what I want to catch. It's not that it's not true. It's yeah. just what is most true for the kid, you know, for understanding like when Jesus comes again to judge you the one who saved you is the one who the one who died for you is the one who's receiving you you know we want this to be like a um we're seeing the what it means for the christian you know so um he had me redraw that page and it was ended up being like one of the best ones in the book so yeah do you want to yeah. describe where it landed it landed um with jesus uh kind of like he's at the throne and he's kneeling down you know, beside the throne, holding out his uh, pierced hands to um, some children. There's a line of children and parents and people kind of coming out of darkness. And their uh, they're kind of dirty robes are becoming white as they like get closer to Jesus. And so you have Jesus kneeling down and showing his hands and saying like, this is what the judgment means for us as Christians, you know, is yeah, the one who died for you is the one who is letting you in, you know. Yeah, that's uh, that's beautiful. And I was really interested in what you said as well, Natasha, about the icon where, you know, half the face is angry, half the face is, isn't or whatever. And it, it makes me wonder the degree to which you intentionally draw upon, um, you know, art history, uh, you know, Christian art throughout the centuries, uh, either uh, in a kind of intentional, like, homage sort of way or uh yeah. just in terms of like the greater influence that sort of like broadly is sort of like behind the work that you that you do in the book yeah there's definitely a lot of that i i would say i mean even when we were kind of drawing up the concept art for what fat cat style was going to be like our kind of two main things were like byzantine iconography and uh kind of ivan durrell disney uh, he's just, he was an old Disney painter. He did the Sleeping Beauty artwork. Um, and so we kind of like meshed those two together because we thought we could create something like both beautiful, but also symbolic and reverent. And so there's so much symbolism in iconography. You know, you could nerd out forever about it. You know, there's colors and there's placement and whether someone's facing directly or like a profile, you know, 
Um, and so I, you know, I, I obviously don't do it perfectly, but I do draw from that kind of stuff a lot. I mean, you have the, the descent into hell page, um, is directly pulled from, uh, a famous icon of Jesus breaking down the doors of Hades and pulling up Adam and Eve, you know? So that was like a total ripoff or illusion or whatever. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like sampling in music or you know yeah. it's, it's 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 definitely you know it's not a, it's not a rip off. I think I think the rip off <laughs> would be if um you thought you could get away with it without us making the connection. You know what I mean? Totally. So like yeah. the fact that that we would see it and be like, "Oh, I've seen that painting before." It's yeah. like you you you're inviting us to make connections with how Christians have depicted this scene in the past, which I think is which is really cool. Um, and I'm also interested in, you know, when you talked about the Apostles' Creed element of, you know, coming to judge the living and the dead and, and the scene that you depicted, it makes us think about those words in a particular way, perhaps in a distinctive way, in a different way than maybe people have thought about before. And I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between text and art and the way that it does have this kind of hermeneutical contribution. Uh, and so you, you've brought up that example. Are there some other ones that maybe come to mind where, you know, that interplay between text and art uh, kind of, you know, maybe creates a new meaning or or um, maybe uh, uh, steers meaning in a particular way? Is there is there a couple of examples that come to mind for, for each of you? Hmm. That's yeah, I mean, one that I instantly think of is... Uh, when we did the Easter book, you know, you have Jesus seeking and saving the lost in each page. It's him connecting with uh, a person in his life, you know, Zacchaeus, Bartimaeus, and, uh, you know, John the Baptist. Um, and the one for the Emmaus friends, uh, we did the moment where the Emmaus friends realize who he is is when they broke bread together. Um, and you kind of have Jesus, he's breaking the bread, looking like communion, and he's holding the pieces like this so that his face is between the pieces you know showing like jesus is revealed like through the breaking of bread through communion you know so that that's the kind of thing that i think of um we kind of put stuff like that in but i will say it's like it makes it very intimidating uh doing art for theology because <laughs> art teaches you so much so it's like it's great because you can teach positive things like you know that breaking of bread but um other things can be like can be totally misleading so yeah it's it's kind of scary and that's why i'm kind of glad to have some some really good people on our team who can be like, Hey, maybe don't, maybe don't draw a pig in this book because <laughs> that's an unclean animal and it wouldn't be there, you know, things like that, where it's like, Ooh, man. Yeah. I was trying to think of, I mean, that one is a really good example of the, um, the judgment spread. I was thinking of other ones that were very different. Part of it too, was the apostles creed was different where the art came first Yeah. Where and the rest, we did have words beforehand. Yeah. Um, although the Lord, prayer that might have been kind of at the same time kind of did yeah. both right yeah, now what's of... in my head the most is the 10 commandments because that's the one that we most recently finished but uh like at the end of the king of christmas the king of christmas goes beyond the manger so they keep fine you know we don't find jesus in just in the stars or in the field he, like he's there but um, we find him where he promises to be found in his word. And so that concept is a very complicated one to grasp or explain. 
And so that was a really difficult spread to, to conceptualize. Yeah. And I, I think it landed. I was surprised like from people in my family that are not of a high church tradition or, I mean, in that case, this is sort of a doctrine of the word type thing. And I wouldn't necessarily think they'd make that connection, but that was the spread where they're like, this really spoke to me. Wherever Jesus' name and word are, there he is. And so it has a, it's like all the characters that Jesus, that that were searching for Jesus, they're standing there before an image of his baptism, before him preaching, before him offering communion, and before him forgiving. And so that was, was another great example. Um, I like the Easter one. The Ten Commandments, there were some tricky ones. Yeah. The, the beginning and the end, because the Ten Commandments we were trying to make so forcefully about Jesus. So there had to be some historicizing to sort of set up. The Ten Commandments are given to, to Israel. And so we start with, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slave, the house of slavery. And it ends there as well. And so that was our opportunity to show in a very, there's a very sophisticated idea to say that you, John, have been brought out of the house of slavery, that that's just as true of you as it is of these Israelites. And so Tasha depicted Jesus on the cross and behind him are these houses in Israel and they're painting the doorways. Um, that one was really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was difficult too, because like sometimes, um, you know, Todd will have this like vision in his head that I'm like, okay, if I could get what's in your head and put it on paper, you know, it's like, we're kind of like trying to communicate back and forth to make sure we're both seeing the same image. Um, and and so it's like, he's seeing this like really richly theological thing where it's like, you have Jesus on the cross, but behind him, the, the Passover and the doorposts looking like the other two crosses behind him and those having the blood on them and then blood on Jesus cross. But there's two different scenes and it's like, okay, how do I get this to make sense? You know, how can I make it so that when you open this page, you know what you're looking at, you know, cause that's quite, you're, we're pulling two things together. We have Passover and we have Jesus being the Passover lamb, you know? Um, so Todd's right. That one, that one is hard in it. Um, it took like, there was like a few different, you know, versions before we were like, okay, this is it. Um, yeah. But still really fun. Like it's actually one of the fun things about doing this is like cracking, you know, like, kind of like get getting through and like figuring out the puzzle of how to make it work, you know, in the best way possible. Well, and that was something it made me think of when we met with Ben Myers once to talk about some of this. He, some of this is the, the scenes that we choose to illustrate. Mm -hmm. And his big point was like, you got to pick cliche stuff. You got to pick something that people can immediately recognize. And that's relatively easy to hook something into the text. It's like a small gloss, like um, for do not commit adultery. We have the wedding at Cana, John 2. And that was, that was a lot of work to, to get that. That's something that I, I don't really anticipate hitting small children in between the eyes, but I also don't think small children have much anxiety about adultery, but it will nail parents. They will feel that yeah. one, I think. Um, yeah. And not I think that one. Oh, yeah. sorry. Oh, go on. 
that one is a good example as well of how the the text and the pictures work together um because in the 10 commandments you know how gives an example of the text of, of the story you're looking at so it's like just like the the good samaritan helped this guy i will help other people you know something like that i'm butchering the text but there was an example given so that the reader knows why they're seeing this moment for that commandment, you know? And so they're kind of the text and the pictures play off each other. Um, and that really helps. Yeah. Well, so I'm really curious now, um, the, the commandment about adultery is the wedding at Cana, not, <laughs> not the passage of the woman caught in adultery. Uh, say, say more, how is Cana tied in? I mean, obviously it's a wedding. So, so kind of the, sanctity of those vows but um yeah i'm just curious yeah so partly and it's um that passage historically uh was second second epiphany in the western one-year lectionary and so it was a time that pastors generally would use to talk about marriage so that that's sort of the inspiration this is what happens when you have a reformationist working on some of this stuff but uh the goal of the book was, I mean, the Ten Commandments is by far the hardest, right? Um, the Ten Commandments is God speaking to people where the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed are, God, of course, speaks those texts, but they're texts that we easily pick up in our own voices and it makes sense. So, but for us to speak the Ten Commandments feels kind of weird and it's so focused on what we've done wrong. So the question is, how do you make a book about the Ten Commandments that kids actually want to read more than once and parents are willing to read more than once. So, you know, you have to let the 10 commandments do what they do, which is they are a mirror for sin. That's true. Um, and at the same time, so this is something like one of our authors, dear, dear hell sank file. They wrote the care of souls. He talks about this sort of building on the book of concords description. Now, I just, as an aside, Lutherans argue about this all the time, but, Hal's right, I think. So there it is. Um, Hal argues for these three sorts of uses of law, where the law says what you shouldn't do. Um, oh man, I'm going to space out now. Any, I'm going to go into different words. So there's the the use of the law that reveals your sin, the use of the law that curbs evil in society, and then the law describes the sanctified life. The law doesn't, you as a pastor can't make the law make people sanctified. But sanctification arises spontaneously out of your heart, out of the word that's transformed you, that put you to death and brought you to life. So the goal of this book, all this is a very long way, <laughs> sorry, to get at that that's the goal of these books is to have some vision of that. So the, the formula that was used is that each commandment protects a gift that God has given you. And so it begins there. Uh, the Lord is my God. He has given me the gift in this case. you. This is a tough example that you picked, Sean. It's my fault. But uh, the Lord is my God. He has given me the gift of chastity. Chastity is defined in the text. I'd have to pull it up. I don't think I have anything right here on hand with me. Because um, we don't have a ton of them in print right here yet. And then it goes on and explains what chastity is and sort of is taught, which chastity Hal defined as using my body for the glory of God. 
And so then it's drawing this distinction. Outside of marriage, I use my body to serve my neighbor, but I do not share my body with them. I treat them just like my brother and sister. Inside of marriage, I share my body and soul. Um, and so it's that positive example. You know, within there, yeah. there is some stuff to let people f- feel the sin in their life, etc. And And it ends there with, uh, just as at the wedding at Cana, Jesus transformed water into wine. So in chastity, in everyday obedience, is turned into joy. It's something like that. I'm not remembering the exact words. Um, but so that was the goal is in each of these, the pictures are kind of a positive things. The one that would maybe be an exception, no, not even there, is the Good Samaritan for murder. It still is a good example. Jesus yeah. saved this person. Uh, and then like, do not covet really sticks in my head, which is the Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes. But it's him interacting with the little boy who has the five loaves and two fish. And so what you see is there's the big crowd, but you're seeing from the little boy's perspective. There he is down on the ground showing Jesus his plate of bread and fish. And there Jesus is on his hands and knees looking at them. Uh, so it's more of that. The, the gift of the do not covet protects is that God has given you enough. I am curious, um, Natasha, um, did you depict the wine as red? <laughs> well, I, it's interesting because when I did that, you know, there's that picture has them, you know, lifting up one of the big jugs and pouring it into the other, however many there were Todd knows. Cause he was like, told me I got the number wrong. Six. Um, <laughs> six. Yeah. Yeah. So six. So he's pouring it in and it's coming out looking like water. And then halfway through it changes color as it's get, being poured in. And I originally had it red and Todd was like, looks too much like blood, which would work symbolically, you know, <laughs> but we're like, let's make it more purpley. So it's, it's more of a purple wine. Yeah. I'm, why do you ask? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just super curious. Um, uh, I, so I'm wrapping up a book right now on wine and well, alcohol more broadly, but alcoholic beverages in the Bible. And um, one of the things that I am curious about is, is how the the scene itself doesn't describe uh, visually how the miracle has taken place, right? It's in the tasting. And so right. I've always been, I've always been suspicious that it, you know, well, A, we just don't know, right? End of the day, we have no idea. Um, but but I've always been suspicious that maybe the wine looked like the water uh, and that that's wine? yeah, yeah, yeah. So and it would I, make I mean, a lot of sense I, for that to truly be the case historically. Yeah, I I I, I huh. uh, have been thinking about this a bit where um, the wines at the time uh, we know every every reference to the color of wine is red uh, in the Bible. This might be the only place where white wine could be implied, but it's not, it's not clear. But by the time of the first century, there are cultures that prefer white wine and it could be true of ancient Israel. And there are some scholars who think that they were making uh, white wine in, in ancient Israel and that it may have been preferred, but it's, mm-hmm. it's speculative. Of course, I just was curious because when I, when I lecture on this, I usually show a handful of uh, children's Bibles to show and, and, and other examples of art, but just to show how it's kind of, I've yet to find one where where 
it basically looks like the water. So I just was curious. Yeah. I was just was curious. It'd be too, in this case, it would be too subtle. So yeah, even I, though, you know, when they're pouring, it's yeah. not like it becomes wine there. And that was always something I felt a little anxiety about. But otherwise, it's too difficult for the child to grasp the picture. Um, yeah. But your white wine thing, I mean, I, I, I think it's 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 a good theory. And that's yeah, that's, it's just a it's just a curiosity. I I um I suggest it in my book, but I, I don't like I defend it or anything like that. But I just was curious because I do think I do think it's interesting, like how do you portray this miracle in art, right? It's so the kind of the consistent way is to represent a a visual distinction. Um, but yeah. I, I've just always wondered if if maybe there isn't a visual distinction. But anyways, yeah. anyways. Um, no, it's a great point. It's just a great example, too, of where the art, there are times that you kind of have to break the rules. Yeah. Um, and that it's that the rules have to apply within the, the system of the thing itself. You know, like Pixar yeah. is really well known for this, right? That Toy Story has this rigorous world. It's not the way the world actually exists, but they set up these rules and they obey them. So that's like in the King of Christmas and the King of Easter, we have people that weren't at these events. But the point is that they're this cloud of witnesses. They're there all together. So you can break the rules. It's okay. I actually haven't had anybody complain about that. When Tasha was, when we had come up with the idea, you know, that like in the King of Easter, Joseph and Mary are going to go all the way through to the resurrection. Um, nobody when they saw the pictures complained when the concept was spoken they were like that's not going to work but then they all mm -hmm. forgot when they were looking at it because it made sense within the rules of the book yeah i think that's something that's really interesting and important about art is that you're not just taking a photograph of what happened in the past you're you're trying to make the truth the you're trying to make it the easiest thing to receive and swallow you want it to tell yeah, like the greatest truth. So things like, um, it's kind of like with acting, you know, how people say they like, they cheat out. It's when, um, when you're on the stage, you make sure you're facing the crowd, even though in real life, they would have been facing each other during a conversation. Um, art is a lot like that, where it's like, um, yeah, you want the, the wine to look red so that you know, it's wine, you know, and you want, um, like even with like the, the three Kings, like, were they Kings? Were they Magi? We're making them Kings. Cause that's how people, you know, that's, that's like the instant visual that people get, you know, sometimes you want it, you're trying to connect with a person and get the truth to them in the simplest, most clear way possible. And so, yeah, like Todd said, you break the rules, but that's just so that it can be received in the best way. Now, speaking of breaking rules, I, I, I am curious as well about the 10 commandments and uh, since there's some, you know, reformational kind of uh, um, influence in this, like Todd, your theological background and stuff like that, as you've been uh, um, quoting Luther and 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 uh, appealing to Calvin and stuff, you know, as you're thinking about like the kind of history of aniconicism, right, within like Christian Christian history, the kind of iconoclastic movements and stuff like that, there are, of course in some reform circles and even outside of it, the kind of um, a suspicion of representing even Jesus, right? So yeah. I am curious, right? So the second commandment, of course, you know, no graven images, and that can kind of get extrapolated beyond, I think, what was intended there. But have you guys had conversations about this, about mm -hmm. like, how do we go about 
depicting well Jesus, of course, but just yeah, some of those issues about like kind of the big picture of like iconicism and aniconicism. Yeah, well, I mean, we've definitely taken a stance. Um, you know, like we're make, we're literally like illustrating the Ten Commandments and drawing Jesus on the page that says no graven images. You know, so it's like there's definitely a stance there. Um, but something I appreciated about the the Ten Commandments book is that it spells out what we think no idols and graven images it means for the believer. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, if if you were to ask my opinion, it would be that yeah, we don't worship something as Jesus other than Jesus, but that he came as a man. He came as someone familiar to us. He was someone who was seen and remembered. Um, and so I feel like when I draw Jesus, I'm, it's like, this is someone who came to earth. This is someone who made himself drawable. You know, he made himself visual. The unvi- the invisible God became uh, a man, a human, you know, something, uh, that we see yeah. as like God broke the commandment first. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, John. We just sum it up. Yeah, well, that's and, exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I think I mean, so we've gotten comments from the strict Westminster 109 types. Um not everybody interprets Westminster Catechism question 109 as strictly prohibiting images, although I mean, it does read that way. <laughs> I mean, it's even like, well, yeah, can we use this for teaching? No. Um, anyway, I mean, that's not my tradition. I don't want to speak poorly of those. I, I know people that, that take it very seriously and, and that's, that's on their conscience. Um, and, and at the same time, when doing children's books, if you don't depict Jesus, mm-hmm. there's just this huge gap. What's going on? So I've seen books where people take that very seriously. And it's strange. The text actually starts to morph into something else because the image you're looking at is emphasizing something different. You read the text different. And I mean, you you can think of this like anytime you read the Bible, if you go and read the Bible and you have certain questions in your mind, those things, they crop up everywhere. I love to do this with like the Psalms, for example. Remember, there's some evangelicals, uh, evangelical biblical scholars that kind of take umbrage with this idea that the Christian life is really, that forgiveness of sins is really important in the gospel. And, you know, they'll say that it's only in a few spots. And you go and you read the Psalms and you think before the Psalms, all right, forgiveness of sins. And it's everywhere. It's all over. But that's sort of this focused reading because the Bible speaks reality. There's so many things that you can focus on. So anyway, but normal art's like that too. You need to have some sort of way to focus. And that's what the words are doing is they're directing you to pick out certain points of the art that's being made. Uh, so, I mean, I think just from a practical pedagogical point, you know, we're not, we're not asking people to worship these images that Tasha has made. That's not, not what we're asking. Um, but I think just from a practical viewpoint, when you look at a child, if we took Jesus out, it, it would be confusing. Um, so, and actually I was just reading about this last night in Ratzinger, Spirit of the Liturgy, where he's talking about art and worship. And he says some pretty interesting things where he's going through the ecumenical council that went over this, uh, second, second Nicaea, Nicaea, I believe. Anyway, it's the seventh one. And that the folks that put down, uh, iconoclasm, they, they saw it as a denial of the incarnation. 
to what they associated with. That if Jesus is really human, he can be depicted. Mm. Uh, now that gets into other ways. Like when we depict Jesus, what are we doing? Do we have to make him look just as he looked, exactly as he looked? And that's one way. But uh, there's a beautiful tradition across art, wherever you look in different societies, that you see Jesus depicted as a person of that culture, which is, of course, good and true. You know, he is this he is the last Adam. Mm -hmm. So, of course, he holds all people together. So, I, I mean, that's I guess maybe you're gently getting at something that could be controversial that the, the Jesus in the fat cat books has dark skin and and part of that is that uh some of that has to do with like historical realities in one sense right the other side of it is this isn't a common way that jesus is depicted uh, and that it's still right and fitting and so it's sort of to blow up biblical imaginations a little bit but i think tasha did a wonderful job of you know that it's jesus even if he's not depicted the way that you're used to seeing him or sometimes there are other people that they take these you know uh there's nothing that would set jesus apart this sort of text and that's really hard with visual art and you're like no i, I literally can't find jesus which of these 10 men is him um so tasha did this wonderful job of you know people have an idea of jesus as sort of regal and noble and uh and he, he really comes across that way um and that was that was the goal was still to communicate all those things and to expand the biblical imagination a little bit. And I'm, Tasha could say better stuff about this, but in general, the books are are really just trying to say, look, here are all the people that God created. You know, children and adults, chubby people, thin people, short people, tall people, people with dark skin, light skin, curly hair, all that. Yeah, I mean, now I'm just kind of from memory vibing with uh, Trillian Newbell's god's very good idea but i think that's really what you did tasha i don't know if you wanted to add anything to that about sort of the depiction of here are humans here they are yeah yeah i want i want like every kind of reader to see themselves in the book you know like young and old you know you don't see a lot of old people in children's books believe it or not or um or disabled people you know and um that's something that i really I'm like proud to be able to like bring in and like depict. Um, and yeah, even with, with depicting Jesus and his face, it's interesting. Um, my, my kids are like my, you know, sounding board. I always get their opinions and stuff on the art and are my biggest fans. And um, I'll ask them what they like about pictures. And so much of the time, my 10 year old daughter will say like, I just really like Jesus facial expression in this picture, which I feel like is very like perceptive for a 10 year old. A proud mm -hmm. mom over there, but um, but to think that kids can see kindness or gentleness on their savior's face, um, it's like my it, it's interesting. Um, I'm just seeing a warm, like, love for Jesus develop in my kid as they see him drawn. Like Todd said, if we didn't draw him, there'd be something missing you know, and, and, and yeah, this is about developing our imagination of, of who he is and, and what he's like. Um, and I think that's another thing that's really powerful is just being able to draw his expressions, um, can communicate things often that, that words can't, you know, um, like the, the Lord's prayer, uh, book, 
has the line, um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And that picture I drew kind of from Jesus' perspective, like over his shoulder, looking down from the cross at the people mocking him. And you see like, um, like a tear on his face. You see like sorrow on his face. And it's like, it's an image that my kids like really connected with. Um, and it's like, wow, yeah, this is something special that, that artwork and, and drawings can, can give, you know, um, that kids can receive instantly without necessarily understanding big words, you know. And that they're ready for these things. I think that sometimes there's a fear to talk about stuff with kids. And um, kids are fascinated by what they're scared by. I mean, some are properly scared by this stuff too, right? But you see, I mean, my own children, they love to watch scary things, even as they're scared by them. They're like obsessed with it. Um, but then also it's it's sort of funny to think, and it's not haha funny, it's interesting that the Christian faith is is so blunt about the everyday brutality of life. Like the core of our faith is that God died. Like that's pretty intense. And um <laughs> I I think that's one of the beauties of these books is it it leads you into that, but also doesn't leave you there. Yes, God died for you and God rose again for you. Um, and and you know, growing up, we were told all the brutal old stories of the Old Testament, but not within the context that that this stuff's all about Jesus ultimately. And so I remember as a kid thinking, like, man, these people are really awful. I mean, David's a pretty miserable dude. Uh, if you're if he's just supposed to be an example for you anyway i've kind of gone off track but um i think that's the beauty of these things too is they really do point you to the brutal realities that you will face and that's the hope that these books are giving you three texts for example that you're going to face miserable stuff in your life not because you deserve it just because you're human <laughs> and you need stuff like he descended into hell which is the coolest news ever that hmm. God loves you so much that he went to the place of utter death and despair and loneliness. And he is there like, that's pretty gangbusters. And that's basically what Ben, Ben wrote for the, he just, he wrote it much better than what I just said, but uh, yeah, those are messages to stick with kids as they face terrible things. That's amazing. And I love that this series is catechetical in nature, that it is not, you know, just a, a series on like gospel stories or Bible stories that, but there's actually this kind of catechetical uh, sort of uh, design to it. And and I, I appreciate that and think that's really, uh, really helpful and, and sort of meeting a, a niche. I don't know of anything else quite like this, um, you know, in terms of children's stories, children's books, children's Bibles. Um, so I think this is uh, pretty cool. And on the point about, um, you know, not depicting Jesus, and if you if you had a children's book series that wasn't depicting Jesus, but was still telling like the stories of the Gospels, right? As if you were sort of always just off camera or something like that, mm -hmm. so to speak, right? Sort of reminds me of, you know, what's what's the thing that's always just right off camera, right? thing that's just never quite there that you never really see it's a monster right and like yeah. the idea of like yeah keeping him away it makes him other in a way that is contrary to the incarnation and so yeah. like you were saying natasha about your your daughter's um appreciation of jesus's smile right that that i think just 
beautifully encapsulates this idea that he's like us uh, and also that he is for us and that I think is is beautiful. So um, just want to say uh, thank you to uh, both of you for uh, your time and for this uh, wonderful resource that mm -hmm. you're developing and uh, look forward to uh, seeing uh, the additional ones that you guys come up with and uh, especially the uh, the book on ordinary time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the uh, the little board the the board book was kind of using this sorry I'm I'm going on but uh we we did this thing of isn't it fun to think that there were like animals wherever Jesus was and just so that was the last project that Tasha just worked on was imagining these different places where Jesus is and all the animals that are there some that aren't there too <laughs> it reminds me uh do you guys know the band me without you we yeah. have this uh, great song, uh, Carrot, st uh, Stick, and, and String, uh, about, about the different animals kind of throughout Jesus's life and sort of their yeah. kind of theological rationale about things. And I, I think that's a really powerful song. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so I, I like that idea. I don't know if that, that was an influence, but I like that. No, it wasn't. But uh, Tasha's husband loves me without you. He Every once in a while. Yeah, I love me shirt. without you. Forget yeah. Lindsay. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't had that conversation. I we actually I, started dating over that. We no way. We that I I put me without you lyrics on my Facebook status, and he commented back with the next lyrics in the song. I was like, "That's it. This is that's it. That's, it. that's it. Wow. I I went to I went to their uh, farewell tour uh, last year. Uh, the the when they came that's through great. Minneapolis, and it was delightful and sad and. Uh, poignant and you know a, a good way to say say goodbye to a fantastic band but anyways yeah. that's that's a little far afield from uh the fat cat series <laughs> yeah, that's all right yeah well, <laughs> but thank you uh, for having us it was really fun to chat with you a little bit yeah well thanks uh thanks again so much for joining us yeah thank you john